because we are entering such uncharted waters, uh, any organization is going to need to be able to tap into the creative, intellectual, functional intelligence of all of its workforce. Hello, I'm Frances Keane, your host and founder of Personally Speaking and the B-Side podcast. As a naturally curious person, what I've observed is that often the backstory, what I think of as the B-side, is where the hidden gems really exist. In this podcast series, we get the opportunity to hear from some thought leaders and discover what drives ordinary people to achieve extraordinary things. So I'm really happy that Margaret Heffernan could join me today. Margaret is multi-talented, once a producer at the BBC, CEO of several tech companies in the States, author of five books, an international keynote speaker, a columnist for the Huffington Post, the FT, and the rest. Margaret, thank you very, very much for taking the time to uh, join us on the B-side today, and we look forward to chatting to you. Well, I'm looking forward to it enormously. Thank you, Francis. Tell me, how are you getting on coming towards the end of lockdown now? How's it been for you? Navigating the ambiguity, I think, is very difficult for people. So some people are sort of thinking, well, tech with the rules, I'll just do what I want. And I know many, many, many people who are so confused by the rules that they're just staying locked in. So I think I think coming out of lockdown will be much harder than going into it. And I think that... Um, the economic consequences of the pandemic, which we really have not felt yet, are going to be severe, confusing, and um, and I don't think anybody feels completely confident that anyone knows how to handle it. To talk a little bit about your latest book, Margaret, Our Uncharted, which focuses on helping really leaders to map out the future in uncertainty. And I know you did not know there was a pandemic happening, but I know I'm not the first person to say it was like you did, having read the book. But I guess we all have to adapt to really living with uncertainty now. And all these leaders are now looking at bringing their staff maybe back into the new normal. One of the things you talk about a lot in that book is preparedness versus planning and you know for the leaders looking at how to look after their staff keep their staff resilient and um, grow the company going forward how do you think they should be looking at preparing for the future I think um, I think leaders are you know having to reconsider a great deal of what they've done because in general senior management positions have been very focused on strategic planning and then operational planning and operational excellence and i think the operational excellence you know remains fundamental no matter what but i think that you know the strategic planning really has to shift and what i mean by that is i think that a huge amount of so-called strategic planning has really just been uh, run out of the finance office and it's been about incremental growth. And that's kind of okay if a little unadventurous uh, when everything's stable, but everything isn't stable and neither will it be. So I think uncertainty is here to stay. So the kind of planning that we've done in the past, which as I say was incremental and it was highly focused on efficiency, 
I think doesn't work both because of uncertainty, but also because when there is a high degree of uncertainty, efficiency is specifically the wrong thing to focus on. And the reason I say that is because if you have an organization that is hyper-efficient, there is no margin for error or surprise. And we saw this going into the pandemic, that certainly in the UK, where the NHS had been run for extreme efficiency for many years, um, the consequence of that was we had no capacity really to absorb what hit us. We didn't have the equipment we needed. We didn't have the people we didn't we needed. We didn't have the beds that we needed. And although you can say, well, you know, a pandemic is a you know unforecastable event, which it is. The truth is, if we'd had a major road traffic pileup, we wouldn't have been equipped for that either, because we were running everything so close to the bone. And that is true of many, many organizations around the world. Once you recognize that there's a very high degree of uncertainty in the world, so that's lots of things which we cannot predict with any sense of accuracy or confidence, then you've got to have margins to adapt to change, um, to find different things to do or different ways to do the old things and cutting things to the bone specifically militates against that. So I think, you know, I think leaders have to rethink how much flexibility and adaptability they need to build into their systems. I think also they're going to have to manage the tension between two things that appear to be very opposite. So I think on the one hand, we're going to need organizations that are very adaptable, very flexible, very agile. Now, agile work traditionally has been focused on efficiency, and that's not what I'm talking about here. I mean, the ability to move swiftly from one project to another. Um, but uh, so so that's really about having people who are multi-skilled, multi-talented, have a very flexible mindset, are very creative and highly collaborative. And that means a focus on many, many experiments because in uncertainty, you never quite know what's going to work best. But at the same time, you need organizing principles so that all of that adaptation and experimentation is around some kind of solid core. And more than ever, I think the job of leadership now is about defining and articulating what that solid core is. Now, we've been hearing a lot lately about purpose, and companies have rushed to put out purpose statements. And when I look at them, I think most of them don't get it because these are just value statements and mission statements kind of you know, repackaged. So, you know, one of well, the one of the ones that I think is kind of particularly absurd is one that says helping Britain flourish, which could mean absolutely anything. So I think leaders have to be much, much more tenacious and focused in deciding what are we here for? What is our organization for? What does it stand for? Why does society need us? What benefit do we bestow on society? And that needs to be clear and precise enough that it tells people what not to do. You know, the investor Warren Buffett always says his, one of his 
questions when he's thinking of investing in a business is what do you not do? Because he said the people who can't say no don't know what business they're in. That's why helping Britain flourish is a useless purpose statement because it couldn't, it wouldn't lead you automatically to a no on anything. So I think there is a huge job for leadership to think deeply with others about why is our company important to society. And it might be in some cases that it isn't, in which case some deeper thinking needs to be done about, okay, so what should we be doing? But I think the truth is that as we come out of one crisis, we're heading into another, which is the climate crisis, and the capacity for organizations to be able to say why they matter and why they're good for the world is going to be unescapable. So, Margaret, we're looking at a very different type of leadership going forward. I think the leaders that went into COVID-19 are looking at a different style of leadership going forward. But what are the common themes I see in all of your work, and I've been working with you since 2015, is that you have a great belief in the need for great clarity and integrity to build trust and to respect the social capital around you. And I think this more than ever is going to play a part in leadership going forward. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, um, you know, because we are entering such uncharted waters, uh, any organization is going to need to be able to tap into the creative, intellectual, functional intelligence of all of its workforce. And that means that leaders are going to have to have a great skill at convening, at understanding who to convene, at being able to frame the helpful questions um, to get a significant degree of participation in thinking about the organization, its future, and its role in the world. This is very different from the model in which, you know, the senior leadership team regularly goes away to a swanky hotel somewhere and figures out the future. I think it's going to have to reach much more deeply into organizations for different and new perspectives and options and possibilities. I mean, at the moment, I see um, CEOs and their senior leaders really doing one of two things. They are either looking at their organization as it was pre-pandemic and thinking, how fast can we get back to that? Is, uh, is there new technology we need to kind of return to business as usual? Um, uh, is there a different structure we need? But how fast can we get back to something as close to what we had before as humanly possible? Um, they're definitely struggling. There are other organizations that are saying, well, pretty much, let's forget about what we were pre-pandemic. Let's see what are all the resources we have now what, and that may be resources in terms of people, plant, machinery, intellectual property, the intellectual capacity of the workforce. Um, where is there need that we really understand? And where do we have some real passion to work? In other words, there is really designing their organizations essentially from a blank piece of paper. And I think they're making a lot of headway a lot faster, is my observation. Um, they're thinking more freely. They're less tied to the past. And 
and um, and they're thinking about the reality that they're entering rather than kind of trying to bend the reality to what they'd like to see. This is really different and it's very challenging. It has to be quite entrepreneurial. But most of all, I think it has to reach out to the commitment and participation of the workforce to say, you know, customers, stakeholders, suppliers, what is the very, 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 very best, most meaningful work we can contribute to the world today? And you've seen this, you know, in companies that kind of overnight decided to start making hand sanitizer or, you know, the restaurants that started to become um, takeaways or to deliver meals to people. You know, this is real from scratch thinking. And I think it's going to take companies faster to a realm that is more sustainable than clinging to the past. So out of all of the parts of business going forward, Margaret, I'm thinking innovation. I mean, there will be some opportunities that come out of this time, I guess, and people will um, do business differently going forward. But innovation has been accelerated at the moment because every company is trying to see how they can survive and prepare for the future. And do you think that will be a good thing? I mean, some there will be some good that will come out of this crisis and maybe shape teams better going forward. Do you see an opportunity there? Uh, definitely. In many of the organizations I work with, there's been a higher level of collaboration in the last three months than in the last you know, 10 years. Uh, necessity being the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. So I've seen two things. I've seen sort of collaboration explode. And I've also seen command and control come out of the woodwork where, you know, everyone thought it had been safely stashed. Um, I think in this kind of environment, command and control just can't be up to the complexity of the challenge personally. And I've certainly worked with a number of leaders who felt it was really effective in the first couple of weeks and then was really delivering diminishing returns. So I think the truth is, you know, that the foundation of all organizational life is that groups of people can see more opportunities, see more ways to do things than individuals working alone. And I think that has never been more true than now. I think that that means that leaders have to create a very collaborative environment. They themselves have to demonstrate that they're capable of collaborating and they, and they all have to understand that collaboration involves quite a high degree of conflict and argument about, you know, should we do A or should we do B? What are the advantages of those? What are the drawbacks of those? And so the skill to be able to manage those kinds of um, collaborations is going to be in greater demand than ever. The people who go into arguments like that determined to win or, um, as the phrase goes, to land their argument I think aren't helpful. I think we need great listeners and people who can combine ideas and people can, who can see where ideas intersect. So we need people who really are great glue. You know, that I've written, I mean, I've spoken a lot, you know, in one of my TED talks about how what makes an organization really effective isn't so much the bricks as the mortar that holds it together. And I think the kind of people and processes that represent that mortar, the people who care about each other, who listen to each other, who understand who's out there and 
whose voices are we not hearing? I think those people are going to be in huge demand because they're going to make the difference between really being able to innovate and just doing some kind of minor tinkering around the edges. I mean, I think it's important to say that, you know, for all that everybody's been talking about innovation for the last 10 years, we haven't actually seen that much of it. We've seen quite a lot of incrementalism. So, you know, you can have different flavors of the same biscuit, but we haven't seen any really exceptional innovation, I would say, since the smartphone. Um, You know, most of the things that we use, most of the ways we do things are pretty much the same as they always have been. So I think, you know, our capacity for innovation wasn't great going into the crisis. I think it's probably got better because of the crisis. And I think people who really can bed in the lessons they've learned during this very difficult time will be a lot stronger and a lot more capable of all the adaptation that we're going to have to get used to. So Margaret, you were writing this book, I think you've been researching it for around five years. As as you said many times, you did not know there was a pandemic in store. You launched a book just at the beginning of the pandemic. But I want to take you back and I want to find out what actually motivated you to write this book in the first place. Well, it was really my sense that people thought about the future in ways that were um, false and unhelpful. So people would say things to me like, uh, what's going to happen with the Brexit referendum or what's going to happen with the American election? As though I knew, as though someone knew. But of course, nobody could know because it hadn't happened yet. But all of the strange questions I kept hearing about the future really implied that people somehow felt instinctively that it's as if the future was behind a locked door and a few special people with a good track record had the key. And I wrote the book really because I thought that this was both profoundly wrong, but also that it rendered us passive or helpless um, in the face of people who just, you know, barged through the door and started making the future that they wanted. And, um, And I felt also that there were a lot of ways that we had of working, which once you accept that the future isn't wholly knowable, really aren't helpful. They're not productive. And that we have to somehow throw that baggage out before mentally we're in a place where we can really start seeing what's in front of us and what the opportunities are. So it was, you know, it's like in a way, all of my books are looking at things which seem to be widely accepted or unconsciously accepted, which strike me as being both wrong and unhelpful. So, you know, just as willful blindness seemed to be endemic, and so I wrote about that, just as our belief that Competition always brings out the pe- the best in people or institutions. You know, that struck me as being demonstrably untrue. So I wrote about that. So I've written a book which was, you know, the way we think about the future is just deeply flawed and unhelpful, and we need to move on to something better. The theme I see going through all your work is your call for people to be more 
honest, more straight talking, um, dispelling myths. And I'm just wondering, I look at you and I go, I think you're Texas born. You lived in Holland for a lot of your life. You were educated in Cambridge. You worked in the States. You've got an Irish surname and you live in the UK with your family at the moment. And I just wonder, is there any part of that journey that really you think um, influenced how you think about yeah. yeah, well, I think that certainly moving to the Netherlands as a child from Texas gave me a great lesson, which is there is no one right way to do things. You know, that that the way that the Dutch ran their society, which is very different from the way the Texans run their society, showed me, okay, well, both of them seem to function. So this idea that there's one right way isn't true. So that's a that's a fantastic kind of insight to have at a young age. And I think it made me deeply skeptical of anyone or anything that argued, no, there is one way or the highway. Um, so I, th- I think that also left me, you know, with a kind of abiding curiosity, which is, okay, so if people do it this way, why? And, um, you know, what are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? What's really going on? What's underneath those processes? So I think really it just, it left me with a very, if you like, skeptical inquiring mind um, that assumed that, you know, that there are always different ways to do things and some of them might be better. Do you think coming out of this as well that people maybe more compassionate and kinder towards each other? Well, I don't know. Um, I'd like to think so. Um, I think that it's very hard to generalize. I think some communities have really come together. Some really have not. Um, I think that the um, Black Lives Matter marches are some indication of the degree to which people want to support each other. You know, it's very striking that in those marches, the vast majority of marchers were um, were white people. So these are people who are going on a protest because they want to express solidarity with other people and they feel passionately that what they want is a world which is just for everyone. So I think you know, it's not completely accidental that that response can be seen now. But I think that, you know, going forward, what's going to be interesting is how far that is sustained or sustainable, because it's going to come under a huge amount of pressure, you know, as we enter really almost unheard of unemployment rates, we're going to have to help each other even more. And I think that the companies and the leaders that can understand how to create worth in that context will come out of it, you know, with a tremendous loyalty and following. And I think that those who try to kind of do business in isolation um, will find themselves quickly losing loyalty and following. 
So you and I, Margaret, know each other after, I remember I contacted you after I saw the Dare to Disagree TED Talk you gave and enjoyed lots of success since then speaking at organisations. And I really think that every single time I've heard you, I've had an aha moment. And that is the one thing, a common thing that everyone says when they hear you speak. But if you could influence business leaders in one way going forward, what would be the one thing that you would like to think you would like to influence them to do? Um, be much more co- much more comfortable and proactive in asking important questions of the whole ecosystem that the company inhabits. Both that's the workforce, that's suppliers, it may even be suppliers of suppliers. Why do we matter to you? What in what we do is important? And as a consequence, what should we do more of and what should we do less of? These are typically questions which are reserved for the C-suite. But I don't think they're where the answers are going to be found. And I'm very struck by the number of people I've interviewed in my book who have been very bold in asking important questions like that, but of a much broader group and as a consequence, had a much stronger, clearer idea of the value that they create in the world. And in the end, that's what a business is for, to create value in the world. And if it isn't valuable to people, it won't be valuable. So be open, be brave, and dig deeper. And listen, 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 listen. Margaret, another a wonderful conversation and thank you so much for giving me your time today well it's my pleasure thanks for great questions that's always where it starts thanks margaret we'll talk to you soon